Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are continuing on in our series through um, really the, the Bible in a year, and uh, we're going to c- pick up in Exodus chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Um, last week, if you were here or if you listened to the podcast, uh, Matt Deason talked about uh, the covenants and um, the, the old covenant, the new covenant, really what it means, what the new covenant means for our day-to-day lives. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about is something that uh, is probably for most of us pretty confusing and seems outdated. And I'm going to get you real excited because we're going to talk about the law. Yeah. Yeah, the Mosaic law. Um, those are the 613 commands that God gives Moses and the nation of Israel as they prepare to enter into the promised land and then living in the land. And I know a lot of you are super excited about it. So that is what we're going to talk about today. I am super excited for two main reasons. Um, the first of which is, I think the way that we view the law and why it exists and, and what God is doing with it and, and what it does, it actually really should inform the way we view the character of God. So what we know about the law and what we understand about the law, it impacts how we view who God is and his character. Uh, and the second thing is, for most of us, we just really don't understand it. And we get to that place, you try to do the read through, through the Bible in a year, you get to like Leviticus 16, and you're like, I just don't, I'm done. Um, maybe I'm the only person who's ever done that. But what you do, you know, you're reading, you're like pretty good through February, and then you get to the laws, and you're like, I'm just going to skip forward until Judges or Joshua. I'm the only person who's ever done that. <laughs> Thank you, Martins, for being honest. Um, Matt Deason nodded his head too. You did that too, right? You've done that before? Okay, maybe this is my public confession. Okay, um, I'm sorry, I've done that before. When uh, we refer to the law, um, you'll hear me use the language of the law or mosaic law or mosaic code. Um, what I'm referring to is all the same thing. I just really like synonyms. So what we'll pick up in is Exodus chapter 20, which if you're reading through the Bible in a year, it's the first place, um, and it's familiar to many of us, it's, but it's the first place where you get uh, laws. You get the first covenant laws. And you might recognize it as what we know as the Ten Commandments. So let's just pick up in Exodus 20, verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. If you would, we're just going to pray one more time. God, um, as we open up your scriptures, uh, we know that we need your spirit to speak to us, to lead us and guide us, to um, understand what you have done and are doing through your word. As you spoke to Moses on a mountain, you have spoken over centuries, and and faithful people have have passed along your word to us today. And it's living and it's active, and I pray that you would speak to us through the scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So uh, for many of us, these words are familiar, either because maybe we were raised in church or we know the Ten Commandments. Maybe we have a grandma who has this knit like into a pillow at her house. Yes, I have a grandma like that. Um, and for the most part, these like first Ten Commandments, they really, they make sense to us in, a, in one way. I mean, we, we get, don't be idolatrous. Like worship the Creator God, worship the God who brought you out of Egypt And um, don't worship other gods. Uh, God's jealous, and he doesn't want you to hurt yourself by worshiping all those other little g gods out there. Uh, Money, sex, drugs, the self. Uh, Or if you are um, a a first century um, Jew, or if you're in the first century Near Eastern cultures, that's like Dagon and Molech and Asherah, or the Egyptian gods that um, came from where uh, Israel came out of. Uh, And so these laws, these first 10, they they generally make sense to us. Um, But the question really is, why did God give another 603 of them? I mean, why aren't the first 10 pretty comprehensive? What's going on with the other 603? Uh, And and really, maybe we could even ask the question is, why why did God give 613 laws um, if Jesus is able to sum them up in two? Like Jesus says, uh, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's two commandments, two, two commands. And why, why need 611 other ones? Uh, if you really read through those first five books of the Bible, why do you need four books worth of laws? I mean, you get Exodus, um, which is really split, split between the story of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus and then you get roughly 20 chapters worth of laws um, split up with a really important story between Exodus 32 and 34, which we'll come back to. Um, but then you also get Leviticus. And Leviticus is really, it's 27 chapters worth of laws about sacrifice and holiness. And then you get to the book of Numbers. And Numbers, again, it's still a mixture of stories about Israel. Um, it's mixed in laws and stories preparing Israel to enter into the promised land. And then you get the book of Deuteronomy, which is really, it's kind of like the Cliff Notes version of it all. Uh, You have this repetition of the story of the covenant and the giving of the law. Why? Why so many laws? Why not 10 and why not two? Well, that's a question um, that the apostle Paul answered in Galatians 3. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll read in verse 19. Why does the law even exist? Why did it exist? Um, What we'll pick up in is uh, this letter that Paul writes to a church in Galatia. uh, And it's in the middle of this argument that Paul is making about the promise that God gave to Abraham, um, which those of you who've been around, you're familiar with that by now. It's this promise that God gave to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations, that he'd inherit a specific plot of land to live with God and then be a blessing to the nations. And it's not only for Abraham, but for his offspring, his seed. And we'll pick up in verse 19 of Galatians 3. So it says, why then, that Paul is asking, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, that's the offspring, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Is the law opposed to the promise that God gave Abraham? Absolutely not. 
For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that his, this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, there's a lot here, and we're not going to get to all of what's in Galatians 3, but hopefully, as um, we've taught over the last couple of months, some of that makes a little bit more sense than maybe it used to. Um, but what I want us to notice is really two things. Uh, the first is that the law was added because of trans- transgressions. So, it's a few slides down, Nick, but... Um, the, the first is that the law was added because of transgressions. That's what happens in verse 19. And then in verse 25, Paul says that the law was our guardian. So what does that mean? I mean, that's what we're going to spend some time talking about. The law was added because of transgressions. Now, if I lose you at some point in this and you want to do more digging, you want to do more research, you want to learn more, there's this really great book called The Pentateuch as Narrative. Pentateuch as Narrative. And it's written by a guy named John Salehammer. And you might recognize that name from when we were doing our Genesis series. He has another book called Genesis Unbound. Uh, but if I lose you at some point or you want to do more uh, research, Pentateuch is narrative is where a lot of this comes from. Um, but this idea that the law was added because of transgressions, this is important. Transgressions, uh, it's kind of a technical Bible word. Um, another name for it is sin, but it's this idea that um, it's rebellion against God. It's, it's crossing the line and pushing back against God. Uh, God rejecting God's direction in favor of our own. And Paul says that the law was added because of that, which is crucial. Because what it, what it implies and what it means is that the law was not something necessary or essential to relationship with God. So Abraham is able to speak with God. He's able to have a promise from God without these 613 commands. But the law was added because of transgression, because of sin. So that bears the question, what is it referring to? What are these transgressions? Now, if you were to go back to Exodus 19, and you were going to read the story from Exodus 19 all the way through Exodus 35, there's some really interesting things that happen. In Exodus 19, God invites all of Israel to speak with him on the mountain. So Israel comes out of Egypt, they go into the desert, they approach Mount Sinai, and God invites all of Israel to come and meet with him on the mountain, to consecrate themselves and to meet with him. But this is what happens. Israel says, no, we don't want to, we are afraid of you. Exodus 20, 20 says, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Uh, In Deuteronomy 5, verses 4 and 5, it's retold. Moses retells it this way. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And then Moses goes on to relay the the Ten Commandments to recap them. Now, it's crucial because the nation of Israel has just come out of Egypt. They've seen God's miraculous work over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. God's faithfulness from them day to day to day. And then they get invited to meet with him. They're, they're told that they're going to be a holy nation. They're going to be a kingdom of priests. 
but they refuse to approach God. They say, essentially, Moses, we're afraid. We don't want to go. You go for us. And so Moses does. And, and while Moses is away, the most interesting and really frustrating and sad thing happens. So hopefully this is a helpful graphic. Maybe it's not. But the idea is that Israel arrives, Exodus 19, and then in Exodus 20, Moses goes back up the mountain. God gives the, the Ten Commandments and invites Israel to approach him. Israel waits, and then Israel says, hey, we don't, we don't want to meet with God. We were rejecting this invitation. You go, Moses. You go for us. We're afraid. So the lines are like when Moses and Israel are in two different places. So Moses is up the mountain, comes back down the mountain. Israel says, hey, we don't want to go. And this is what happens next. When Moses goes back up the mountain, this is what happens. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, if you know the story of Exodus 32, it's where the phrase holy cow comes from. The idea is that it really is. The, the nation of Israel gets frustrated Moses goes back up. There's one point in Exodus 24 where he comes back down for a period of time and goes back up. But at some point when Moses is up the mountain talking with God, Israel makes an image and bows down in worship to it. Now, I don't know if you remember what happened you know, 12 chapters earlier, but what were rules number one and number two? Don't do that. And what were the very first things that Israel does in response? They say, yes, we will follow this covenant, and then they break rules number one and two. And so what happens is Moses realizes, God realizes what's going on, sends Moses back down. Moses sees the transgression, comes back down the mountain. He takes the two tablets that God has given him the Ten Commandments on. He crushes them on the ground out of frustration. And then there's this really interesting interaction following up of what is God going to do? What is God going to do? Because these people... They just clearly are unfaithful. I mean, they can't even last like a couple, they can't last a couple months. And yet, what God promises to do is he promises to be faithful even though Israel is obviously unfaithful. So you get this really powerful statement in Exodus 34 about the character of God. He, he pronounces his name to Moses. He reveals to Moses his essential character says, the Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So even though these people are going to reject me, I'm going to be faithful to them. And then more laws are added. So when Paul says that the law was added because of transgression, these episodes are what he's referring to. Israel's supposed to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and not only did Israel refuse to approach God, they, they essentially, while Moses is off finalizing the marriage covenant, essentially what Israel does, to extend the analogy, is they cheat on God at the foot of the mountain with a golden calf. So the, the laws, as Paul mentions in Galatians 3, they're not, they're not opposed to the promises of God, but they are added in the midst of this storyline where God is being faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham. And they're added because of transgressions, and they're added as a guardian. Remember, we read that word guardian. 
And in Greek, the, the language that Paul would have wrote the letter of Galatians in, the word is paedagogos. And paedagogos is a technical word. So it means guardian, but it's this idea of like a live-in babysitter who tutors and takes care of and teaches a young child until they're ready for something else. And a paedagogos was really common in either middle-class or upper-class families to have this live-in babysitter who would teach and take care of a young child. And Paul says that the law was like a paedagogos, a tutor, a guardian, a caretaker, until something else came. And he says that something else is faith in Christ Jesus. And this kind of begs the question, what exactly did the law teach? Um, what, what did it teach Israel? What did it teach anyone? What would it teach us, like reading thousands of years later? And we could spend like several weeks talking about this, but just to kind of quick gloss over. The law is a teacher, and it's really a teacher of three things. The first is righteousness and justice. The second is wisdom and understanding. And the third is really how to rightly approach God. Uh, In today's world, you will see parts of the Mosaic law cited uh, as examples of righteousness and justice. And you might remember that that blending of that phrase, righteousness and justice, tzadokah and mishpat. And that is what one of the things that the law teaches And so people will still cite the Mosaic law as an example of how we should care for the poor, how we should care for the the orphan, the widow, the foreigner living among us, or or even like righteous personal conduct. Because the law did, and, and it still does in large part, it has much to teach us about righteousness and justice. And David, King David writes in his super long acrostic poem in Psalm 119, He says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. So evidently, if you want to be blameless, you need to learn to walk according to the law of the Lord. You need to learn the law of the Lord. That's what it'll teach you, how to be blameless. Second, the law teaches about wisdom and discernment. So there's two really interesting um, laws, uh, just to kind of highlight a couple. The first is in Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. It says, If a man is newly married, he must not be sent to war or be pressed into any duty. For one year, he's free to stay at home and bring joy to the wife he has married. Now, if you're thinking through like all of the possible laws to give, this kind of seems like an interesting one, right? But it's important, especially given the context of what Israel is doing. And I can, I can speak from personal experience that this is an unwise thing to do. So my wife and I got married on May 31st, and we went away to Greece, and then like on June 14th, I left for two weeks worth of military training. It was not only, maybe it's like an unjust thing, but it's just plain an unwise thing to do. Like the, the law has these ideas of wisdom built into them, something that we can learn from. The other one, It's just a chapter later in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25. You may have heard this before, and I say it all the time, but do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Annie laughs because I say it all the time. Um, Paul uses this law about muzzling an ox while it's treading out grain. He uses this in in a very different context. So the law originally, you have an ox, it's treading out grain, don't put a muzzle on it, let it eat. Like, it, it's hungry while it's doing work for your field. Let it eat in the field. Like, that's, that's like a wise thing to do. But then Paul, later in the New Testament, actually gives 
kind of the, he uses the precept, this wisdom embedded in this law, to talk about how people who serve the church, whether it be in a full-time or part-time capacity, it's, it's okay for them, it's wise for them to draw some sort of physical compensation for the spiritual work that they're doing. And he cites this law about muzzling an ox as an example of kind of why this makes sense. So the, the law can teach us a lot about wisdom and understanding and just kind of how we should think about the world. And then third, um, the law really teaches us about how to approach God. Now that's foreign to us now, um, because if you read through the law, you read about foods and ritual purity, you read about cleanliness, you read about the priestly system, uh, you read about sacrifices and the tabernacle and the temple, um, and, and we don't do most of that stuff. Um, but the laws are laid out for a people who wanted human mediators. They wanted someone to go between them and God. That's why they send Moses up. So God gives them laws on exactly how to do it. He gives them a whole system on how to do it. And, and they're really clear steps. And, and then God teaches us, really through the sacrificial system, what he thinks about sin and the gravity of sin. And then we learn about in festivals, we see that God really likes to remember, he, he really likes to remind his people, he likes when they remember his faithfulness. I mean, you have these festivals year in and year out that remember the highlights of how God was faithful to his people. And then you read about the tabernacle and the temple and you realize, oh, God really wants to be among his people. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what the temple and tabernacle is all about. It's all about a meeting place between humanity and God. And so, when Paul, in Galatians 3, he, he refers to the law uh, as a guardian, he says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So there's this, there's this difference between the, we, the way that we, as those who have faith in Jesus Christ, live and those before that. Now we don't have that guardian anymore. We have faith in Jesus So we're no longer under this guardian, but what exactly should that mean? I mean, for one, I think it means we we shouldn't disparage the law um, or or forget about it altogether. Like I said, there's a lot to learn there. Uh, We can appreciate why it came to be, and I think in in appreciating that, we can have kind of a healthier view of who God is. Um, Why God gave it helps us understand what he is like. See, some of us, maybe for years, or maybe even our whole lives, we've thought of God as largely this rule-based entity who lives out there, who just, for some reason, really likes rules and regulations. And so he kind of dispenses them ad hoc, just maybe at a whim. Hey, I like this. I really don't like um, shellfish. And so, uh, Israel, you guys can't eat shellfish. I mean, some of us think like that is the way that God came up with these 613 commands. And then, so then we apply that into our relation to God now, and we think of him primarily in terms of rules. And the way we relate to God is either we follow the rules or we don't. But that's not really the picture that we get of what God wants, or even why the law exists. So yes, God gives direction and God gives commands um, to follow for the sake of the covenant, like every covenant has, like a marriage has. There's, there's things that govern the covenant. Um, But as Paul said, the the 613 commands came because of transgression. Israel refused to approach God. They wanted a mediator between them and God. And then they couldn't even keep commands one and two, just really days after they agree to keep them. What God is really interested in, he's interested in covenant keepers who will approach him. So 
what Israel does is they respond in the midst of that and they say, hey, we're not going to approach. But God, in his mercy and grace, he gives further clarification. He gives this guardian in the law. But then, when, when time comes, and there's always been this promise of something even better, and something even better then does come along, which is God himself. Jesus comes to live among his people. And if you think about it, and you think through the lens of, of what I talked about, what the, what the law teaches us, righteousness and justice, wisdom and understanding, and how to approach God, if you use that lens to think about what Jesus does, well, he, he largely does the same thing. But he helps us, he clarifies some of those things. He teaches us all about righteousness and justice. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. He, he teaches us about wisdom and understanding. You think about the parables. And he teaches us about how to approach God. And the, the mind-blowing thing about it is not so much that now there's the system and rules and regulations to govern it, but that God himself has come to dwell among his people. It, it's no longer 613 commands that govern it. It's God coming to dwell among his people. There is something crazy about the new covenant, this, this new thing that happens when Jesus comes on the scene. Not, not only uh, is there, there no longer a guardian, but now there's the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us to actually want to live out the things that God has commanded us. It, it's not only that we now want to, it's now that we actually have the power to do it. it it's not as if there's no longer um, commands anymore. Now, some of us fall off, but maybe if we don't think of God in terms of like the, the rule-based God who just kind of out there exists, some of us fall off the horse on the other side and think of um, this God who really just doesn't care about anything anymore. Yeah, he's kind of out there, but you know, he's, he's personal, he gets it, he's, he's just really forgiving and kind, and so he really doesn't care about much anymore. And that's not really the picture we get in the New Testament, right? I mean, Paul says as much in his letters, uh, and Jesus even clearly gives us, let's just based on two clear commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, commands. And then Jesus even says that my, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And they're not suggestions, they're not ideas, but Jesus says they're commands. But the key difference between, let's say, the guardian and our relationship to Jesus is is that there is a new covenant where we actually are empowered to live those things out. Uh, it's no more just that, oh, hey, you got to muscle it up and try to be faithful. It's that God's dynamic power is living inside of you to actually live it out. When Moses um, led Israel to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, like I said, God invites uh, Israel to approach him. And really what God is inviting them into is this sort of like face-to-face relationship, like a friendship. It's the same relationship that Moses gets to experience. I mean, Scripture even tells us that God would speak to Moses face-to-face like one speaks with a friend. Israel doesn't want it. They're afraid to approach. Moses actually gets to have this really powerful face-to-face, intimate, friendship-type relationship with God himself. And then when God comes to dwell with humanity— He calls his disciples friends. This is from John. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've now made known to you. So God, even back in Exodus 19, all the way through to Jesus, 
What he's interested in is inviting people into this face-to-face sort of relationship. And the reality is that one day you will see God face-to-face. That's the long and short of it. One day you will see God face-to-face. There's very few things in the world that we can be sure of. That's one of them. You will see God face-to-face. And thankfully, uh, we live in the covenant, in the new covenant. Uh, And one of the things that happens when we see God face-to-face is what's termed in in Scripture as a judgment. So when we get to see God face-to-face in this judgment scene, uh, thankfully, because of the new covenant, we won't be judged based on our adherence to these 613 commands, uh, but we'll be judged on our relationship to the judge. The judge wants to call you friend. You're approaching someone who loves you and knows you. When that day comes, it's not as if you're approaching the bench as this ambivalent, careless, or even malicious judge. You're approaching a judge who wants to call you friend. And we are actually empowered to live out the things that this judge, this friend, wants of us. So think about that. And think about what that whole context of what God invites people into and what that means for every time that you or I don't love our neighbors as ourselves or, or for all the times that we gossip or for the times that we overindulge in alcohol or food or every time we ignore the calls to submit to one another uh, or the commands to think of others more highly than ourselves. Uh, think about it in terms of what it means for for the times that we refuse to or don't uh, heed the commands to abstain from sexual sin, what it means for every time we lust or misrepresent ourselves or act out of greed. Some of us, we do those things with just a hint of guilt and a whole lot of flippancy. Ah, God gets it. He'll forgive me. Oh, well. Realize that every time you or I choose those sins, those transgressions, we're, we're being just like Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Israel is invited into a friendship with God. And essentially, one way to think of sin is just re- rejecting the friendship of God, saying, no, I got it myself. I will do what I want. I don't want to approach you. God has invited us into a friendship. And, and, and many of us, myself included, there's these consistent patterns in our life where we just, we just refuse to, to respond to that invitation. We do that with our thoughts, with our words, what we do, what we don't do. And this morning, as I close, what I want us to really think about is that, that invitation to friendship. Uh, the law, the giving of the law, why it was given, I mean, it teaches us about the character of God. God wants to be with his people. He wants friendship with his people. When Jesus comes, that's what he invites the disciples to. That's what he calls them. He calls them friends. And this morning, before we approach the the tables, which we do every single week, I want us to pause and think and pray. Now, I've tried to make a a personal habit before I come to the the communion table every week is to to think about these things, to confess. Um, Lord knows that there are plenty of things for me to acknowledge. And acknowledging is really just all that confession means, right? Confession is just simply saying out loud or or acknowledging or saying to God the things that are true. Hey, this is what happened. This is what I did. And and handling and dealing with the gravity of those things. Now, before we come and approach the tables, 
I just want to put one question up on the screen, and it's broad enough that it's not just in terms of, hey, how did you sin this week? Because that's not my question. I mean, we would be pretty depressed if that was my constant question or anyone's constant question. Hey, come to church. Like, you're going to get asked, how'd you sin this week? That's not my question. My question is, are there any ways in which I've rejected your invitation? This is to God. This is a question to ask to God. Any ways in which I've rejected your invitation to friendship this week? If so, what do you want me to do? And for some of us, there's like a really clear way that we can answer that question. Hey, this is what I did. I went on that website again. Or I looked at that again. Or I said that again. Or acted that way again. If so, what do you want me to do? For others, it's, hey, I, I, I know that I should have done this and I just didn't do it. I, I know that there was this prompting from the Spirit to go and talk to that person or I know that there was this uh, kind of urge to, yeah, I should have been more generous with my friend, but I didn't do it. If so, God, what do you want me to do? Um, so what I'll do is I'll invite Annie um, and Lane back up just so um, I don't like silence, so. That's like a personal problem I have, but I don't like silence. So what um, I'm going to have them do is just play a little bit of music in the background while we pray and ask this question. Um, now, if you're new here, one of the things that we, we believe is that God speaks. And we believe that God speaks to the scriptures. We believe that God speaks directly to each and every one of us. If we're open to it, we can hear him. Um, we, he speaks a whole lot more than we often listen, I think. And so as uh, we pray and ask this question for maybe three, four minutes, um, they're going to play behind it, but I just encourage you to pray, uh, and then I'll come back up and uh, open the tables in a second. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we know uh, that there are ways for us to grow. None of us have arrived. And so for each and every one of us, help us to understand and help us to be able to answer this question this morning. God, speak now. So I was talking to um, Jenna and my wife about this um, yesterday. Um, one of the clear uh, ideas and stories that came to mind uh, is one that often comes to mind for me. And for whatever reason, I really identify with, with Peter. Uh, so Peter um, tells Jesus in, in uh, the, the whole stream of events, hey, Jesus, you know what? I'm going to die for you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. So Peter goes and Jesus gets arrested and uh, Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. And Jesus is, is on trial and then Jesus is executed. And, and Peter, who was one of his closest friends, at least his, his closest disciple, um, has denied even knowing the man. And that's the story that we get in the Gospels. It happens three times. 
And then we, interestingly, we only have one picture of a conversation between Peter and Jesus post the resurrection. Um, so you can only imagine that, that Peter goes through this whole process. He denies Jesus. Um, he, he's part of the, the crowd that sees him resurrected. He believes in the resurrection. He's with the disciples afterwards. But we don't have really any record until um, what happens in John chapter 21. Now, if I'm Peter, and I deny even knowing my friend, and I come to find out that my friend can also raise from the dead, I'm probably pretty scared of what's going to happen the next time I talk to him. You know, I can acknowledge who he is. I can acknowledge the power, and I can acknowledge, like, wow, I, I know that guy. But I'm probably pretty afraid of whatever that conversation is going to be like. And what we get is a beautiful record of what happens when Jesus and Peter finally talk and Peter's out fishing with his buddies, and they see a guy on the, on the shore, and the guy says, oh, why don't, you, why don't you fish off the other side of the boat? And they go, oh, yeah, I never thought about that one. So they drop the net on the other side, and they, they bring up fish, and they, they think, oh, my gosh, like Jesus did that to us once. And then they realize, their eyes are open, that Jesus is on the shore, and he's making a breakfast. And, and Peter uh, rushes to go see Jesus. And Jesus sits down um, with Peter and has a meal with him. When they had finished eating, this is in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I can only imagine being Peter and having that question, being knowing the last time that you interacted, you were, you were, look, you were like locking eyes and you saw me deny you. You saw me. And you're asking me this question, do you love me? And, and I'm, whatever I say, whatever, however I'm going to respond, you're just going to rip into me. If you love me, why did you do that? If you love me, why wouldn't you? Why? You just expect to be ripped into. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. No ripping into, no accusation, no, how dare you? How could you? None of that. He gives them something to do. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. So two times. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter exactly what the rest of his life is going to be like. And in fact, Peter will die for Jesus, Jesus tells him. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Peter is reinstated by Jesus. Jesus does it three times for a reason. Like maybe Jesus didn't cover number one and number two. But Jesus reinstates him three times to teach Peter, yeah, all three of those, yeah, they're covered. It's okay. I have something for you to do. When Jesus invites us into friendship, that's the sort of relationship we get to have with him. Even in the, even in the midst of whatever we might do. Uh, for those of us uh, who may, may feel uh, this fear of approaching God because we're afraid what we're going to get ripped into for, let that story be an encouragement to you. That Jesus has something for you to do. He's just asking for you to approach him for response. And because of his death on the cross, we have this guarantee of forgiveness. And that's what we get to receive every single Sunday when we come to the tables. And so our normal habit 
on Sunday is to come to take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then hold on to it. And we'll take it as a family together after this next song. So I'll invite you uh, to come forward, take the bread, dip it in the cup. And then if you have um, tithes or offerings, if, if you call River's Edge home, um, the bins, that's what those are for. Um, so I invite you over this next song to do that. Let's pray.